Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. So hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. So one of the greatest and grittiest passages that I had to cross as I came through the eye of the needle in my unbecoming was confronting my trance around a male God. This was confronting because the very thought of questioning His presence or dominion over my life was in itself filled with trance-like behavior, as if I would be struck by lightning for even thinking about it or questioning it. Growing up in a strict Roman Catholic household, I had never been offered any spiritual autonomy, and my faith in God or as today's guest refers to this patriarchal construct as the great white male God, was never to be questioned. As the trance-like hold of the patriarchal delusion crumbled around me, I became more and more curious and then horrified by what I found as I removed layer after layer of beliefs that kept me in the trance of unworthiness and how deeply this is really shaped by religion in terms of at least my personhood and my life. So today's guest is Dr. Christina Cleveland, who is a social psychologist, a public theologian, an author, and an activist. And she is a brilliant author and writer. She wrote the book, God is a Black Woman, and I just finished it last week, and it has rocked my world. A little bit more about her before we begin, but I cannot wait for this conversation because she talked about so many things that I know that you as my audience are going to deeply appreciate because you are all in this process as well of unbecoming. So a little bit more on Christina. She is the founder and the director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys toward liberation. She's a weaver of Black liberation and the sacred feminine, and she integrates psychology, theology, storytelling, and art to stimulate our spiritual imaginations. So this was her third full-length book, God is a Black Woman, which details her 400-mile walking pilgrimage across France in search of ancient Black Madonna statues 
And during her journey, she examines the relationship among race, gender, and cultural perceptions of the divine. So with just giving you a little bit of background, you could see why I was so interested in having her as a guest on the show. She holds a PhD in social psychology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, as well as she is an honorary doctorate from the Virginia Theological Seminary. She's also an award-winning researcher and author and a Ford Foundation fellow who has held faculty positions at several institutions of higher education, most recently at Duke University's Divinity School. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Christina Cleveland. Hi, Christina. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being here and just honoring us with this piece of work. This is such a beautiful piece. I'm just so blessed to have been able to read it. And I was resonating, as I told you, with so much that I, of course, I have like a million questions. But what I would love to start with is actually just what, you know, telling our listeners, like, what had you decide to do the pilgrimage and just a little bit more about that. Mm. <laughs> so the pilgrimage was really an act of desperation. I am, um, I mean, some of it's personality. I'm quite um, a daring person and I tend to be pretty willing to take risks. But I did walk, you know, 400 miles across central France in what turned out to be a mountainous area in the middle of winter without any knowledge of the French language <laughs> and without any like real pilgrimage path. It wasn't like this, the like, Camino or something where lots of other people have done this pilgrimage. So it was a little bit bananas for me to do that. <laughs> and some of it's personality, but a lot of it was I was absolutely desperate to, to encounter in the flesh images of the divine that I could relate to. I had grown up in this world of white male God. And as a Black girl and a Black young woman growing up, I'd always felt alienated from this God. And it sort of built up to this sort of volcanic tipping point, I guess. I had questions from early on about this God. And, you know, usually my questions would turn into self-doubt or turn into self-judgment because that's what patriarchy teaches us. You're supposed to blame the victim. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, if I'm having questions about this God that I'm supposed to feel safe with, you know, this God is Emmanuel, God is with us supposedly, but I don't feel that. Okay, I should just double down on my prayer and my disciplines <laughs> and my faith and whip myself into shape. But over time, as I and that lasted for a long time, that sort of conditioning. But over time, as I grew into adulthood, and became more and more disillusioned with the world. And part of that was, you know, a big, big catalyst was 20, 2012 when Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman and coming face to face with just the spiritual community that I had been a part of and their unwillingness to see Black pain, even though at, it was literally a national conversation at that point. And then another tipping point or critical point when Trump got elected and seeing how the way he talked about and treated women wasn't taken seriously by that same faith community. So I eventually got to this point where I was like, gosh, I, I need another image of the divine that I can trust, that I can relate to, and that I 
that sees me because mm-hmm. I didn't feel seen by this white male God. And so, you know, I, I started just researching and found the Black Madonna within very quickly, which felt like a, a gift. But after a couple years of studying her from afar, just based on books and pictures, and I think I took some like e-courses on the Black Madonna, you know, I had to go see her because I'd been surrounded by these images of white male God my whole life mm-hmm. and really poisoned by them. And I thought, you know, what we can imagine is so important. I want to go see her and touch her. And so <laughs> I decided to go to this area of central France it's called the Auvergne region. It's very under-publicized. Most people in France have never been to it. <laughs> yeah, they're like, where is this place you speak of, right? Yes. What is this? Also, like, you know, why would you go there? <laughs> if people have heard of it, they kind of, I don't know if some of your listeners have a Christian background, but kind of that same idea of like, Jesus was from Nazareth. Why would any, why would anything good come from Nazareth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's like, it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of backcountry. They actually call that part of France, deep France, like, like the deep South, because it's just so French. It's so old country, not particularly diverse. So like in Paris or Marseille, or Bordeaux, you're going to see lots of other people. It's a, they're international cities, right? Like you see lots of people who aren't French there in those cities. Yes. And not in the Auvergne. Like in the Auvergne, it's all these old French people. But it's this magical place where they're within like a 20 mile radius of the major city. There are like 40 black ancient Black Madonna statues in these tiny villages. And the whole area is surrounded by volcanic mountains. So it's just very sacred yes oh it's it's forever been this like very sacred spiritual place and so and there's lots of hot springs in everywhere of course because of the volcanic activity so yeah i'm like i'm dying to go of course i read mary magdalene revealed i don't know if you mm-hmm. read that I know but that and also you know longing for the dark mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but just the descriptions and like i did you I'm just going to ask, like, did you find the cave of eggs or was that even on your on your path? No, that wasn't on my list. So and that was all news to me, right? That that was such a such a prolific place for the Black Madonna and just the devotion that the devotion. Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And you still see it today. I mean, it's there are you know, it's interesting because France is extremely secular. Mm hmm. So most people don't go to church and the churches are generally empty. And a lot of these Black Madonnas are in churches now that don't have a parish priest or anything because they just, there are no services there. Sometimes you, you know, you walk all day to get there and it's locked and <laughs> you know stuff like that. But there are, I'd say two groups of people that are still quite devoted. There's the old mothers. And so I met all these people who were like, oh my gosh, my grandmother loves the Black Madonna. You have to meet her. And they would translate. Yes. And the grandmother would meet me and start crying because she'd be so honored that I came all the way from the U.S. to see her Black Madonna. Oh, yes, of course. Deep, deep devotion, deep generosity, a kinship, you know, stay at our house, come back for Christmas, you know, like you're one of us, that sort of vibe. And then you see younger folks, millennials and Gen Zers, young Gen Xers who are like witchy onto the Black Madonna. So very much coming from it outside of the Catholic Church, yes. but recognizing her powers in a much more pagan or Christo-pagan kind of way. And so there's there's still a lot of devotion. 
what it's bringing up for me is I have also had Perdita Finn on the show and Perdita Mm -hmm. wrote The Way of the Rose. And she talks about, you know, these, just these elders, these wise women who have had that devotion and have passed down that devotion generation after generation. Again, the rosary is an act of rebellion Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. really like keeping the Madonna of their understanding, the goddess of their understanding very much present in their hearts, in their bodies. Yeah. And just really hearing, like, I love that they were, like, so honored that you came, that it it holds so much meaning for them. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, yeah, there are so many dynamics at play. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you just see me in these tiny villages where literally it's like a whole parade of people following me around, you know, or like I I had an experience just last year because I was back in France for three months just doing some more personal pilgrimage. And I met several people in the, in the village. And then, you know, the, the sort of the village phone tree got activated through that. And then that afternoon, I was randomly in a coffee shop in that village and the mayor came up to me because he had heard of me through of the phone course. tree, you know, like so much just like, <laughs> and of course, being a black woman in these spaces that are typically like white and being young in a place that we're very much like this is an elderly, po- an aging, you know, it's like the sort of rural agricultural area. So an aging population. So there's just so many reasons why there's buzz with yes. the village, you know? a lot of curiosity, but then of course, just a lot of like connection, immediate connection, because many of these folks, I mean, the Black Madonna is, is the center of the culture in their village. And so for the listeners, and, you know, I'd really love for you to just express well, I want to go back, first of all, to this desperation that you talked about, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And also, like, what the Black Madonna symbolizes, not only for you, but for these this culture, the herstory mm-hmm. of it, a uh, little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone who's looking, you know, my background is social psychology. I'm a Black woman who was raised in the 20th century, you know, mostly in the 20th century in the United sorry, 20th and 21st century in the United States. And so, you know, I'm definitely applying a critical race lens to my perception of the Black Madonna. And part of that desperation for her came out of my experience as a Black person in the United States and the fear that I experienced, the the trauma that I incurred by being a Black person, the alienation in many spiritual spaces, not just Christian ones, but I spent a lot of time in Buddhist spaces and Jewish, you know, there's this, this idea of white male God that really transcends any one particular space. My God, does it ever. And so I was, you know, I think I look at her Blackness and hold on to her Blackness in a way that I haven't seen amongst people who have been devoted to the Black Madonna. Now, that doesn't mean that that it's not out there somewhere. And I'm hoping to spend some time with like the Algerian Black Madonna or some of the South African Black Madonnas because that there might be a different experience than what I've encountered. But when I've read books written by Western people, primarily women, or looked at the way people have studied the history of the Black Madonna... I think what I have in common with those folks, I don't think I have race or any sort of sort of critical race lens in common with them, but I have in common with them desperation. Mm-hmm. She seems to really draw people who have tried everything else, 
who have nowhere else to go. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll see that a, a big pope or a famous emperor loved the Black Madonna. But for the vast, but in general, the Black Madonna is beloved by the least of these. And I think one other thing that just seems to be a common thread is people come to her because they're carrying something, whether it's a question or a pain or a hope. But there's just like this, there's this way that she invites people to lay whatever it is they're carrying down so that she can carry it for her. I often think of the Black Madonna carrying the the child as she's carrying whatever it is that we need to be carried, whether it's our grief, like he's he, he's our grief baby, you know, or he's our hope baby or whatever. But we're just we can't carry it anymore because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. we're just men and we just can't. And she's like, I got you. <laughs> And so for me, what I was carrying was just all the pain and trauma and questioning of growing up in this world where all that is sacred is white and male and all that is profane is black and female Mm -hmm. or black and not male. Mm -hmm. I want to be trans inclusive. Yes. And so, you know, just this, that was, it was too much and my body was breaking down and my my emotions were revealing this deeper, these deeper cracks that I had tried to cover up for years and years and years. Yes. And so that's kind of who she means to me. And I think that's similar to a lot of other people around the world and across history. I really, I mean, there was so much that I resonated with, but I was getting really tender with as you expressed, just the unraveling, the the lifting of those veils as you continue to kind of, and, and just all of your imagery and all of the ways that you were bringing in these, you know, whether it was through movies that you grew up with or other things. At one point, it was like the Princess Bride and you were talking about the forest and the, you know, the construct of like the concrete city with the male monuments. Mm-hmm. But where I was really just having so much tenderness and so much resonance was also, as you were talking about unraveling this while you were simultaneously very much loving your family and like mm-hmm. the dynamics, you know, because there is a deep part, I think, of me and I would say my listeners, anybody who has grown up in a religious household where you are so insulated mm-hmm. from, first of all, other points of view, other perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I loved how the first thing that you started talking about when, you know, you said it was actually an act of desperation was you talked about kind of growing up and like, it was always about like doubling down. Mm-hmm. Anytime you turn to question anything, it suddenly was revealed like something unsatisfactory about your character that you would even question it. Yeah. Yeah, the way I think about it is like, I was pretty much taught at home and in spiritual communities, if there is a problem, I'm the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm starting as I'm like moving away from white male God in a way that my spiritual communities of origin, family of origin can't relate to, I'm starting to see, oh, there's a problem. So then the first thought is, well, it must be me. (laughs) Yes. And I think what's challenging that I think a lot of your listeners can relate to is how much 
spiritual and social homelessness you're going through at this point too. It's like, I don't have a community that's affirming me. I don't have a community of people who are saying like, we're holding you in prayer or come and meditate, you know, like you're kind of just on your own. And sometimes you can start to find those communities or carve out those communities, but there's definitely a liminal space in there that for me was years. Oh, yeah. And I still experience it on a level now, but I don't, but I, I, my, but the beauty, the, the magic of that space and why I think it's so valuable is because you learn to be with liminality, you know, you learned. So I, it's not scary to me and it's not even as lonely to me as it used to be. Right. Because that's where it's just, that's where I think I was being invited to let go of a lot of these patriarchal instincts towards um, certainty security, false sense, you know, this false sense of security and all that stuff. So and needing a community to affirm me as opposed to needing a community so that I could be interdependent or, you know, practice mutuality. But so yeah, there were a lot of good things happening, but it's extremely scary and lonely and isolating and messy. <laughs> and messy as hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there's so many conversations I look back on and I'm like, oh, I I would have liked to have said that with more grace. I would have liked to have said that in a less reactive way. And then that's where I feel like, you know, she who cherishes our hot mess, one of the Black Madonnas I visited and nicknamed, she's saying, but actually, you get to be messy. Yes, you get to be messy. And I loved too. Yes. I mean, I was just like, at that point, I was just jumping up and down because (laughs) seriously, because... I always talk about, you know, again, like the trance of unworthiness. It's like, how, how does it show up? It shows up in perfectionism. It shows up in too much and not enough. It shows up in all of those double binds, right? It shows up in chronic over-apology, even how women hold their bodies, how we don't take up space, how we don't speak up. And it's like all of the places that we have been taught not to go. Mm-hmm are actually the places that we have to reclaim in order to re-inhabit ourselves. And so that means our intuition, that means our emotions, that means our sexuality, our sacred sexuality, you know, and all of these places that we were taught it was dirty or wrong or witchcraft or our entire, like you start to understand at these deeper and deeper levels, how our body became an emotionally uninhabitable place. And so we left, we disassociated, and we're like, just up in our heads or out there somewhere, dragging it over to the bright side every time. And there is just this coming home that is so beautiful and so uncomfortable, right? And it is so So foreign. And it is so and you know, I say foreign, you know, and I think about you going to this other country. And it's like, and the loneliness that you're experiencing while you're on this journey. Mm -hmm. But it was this desperation, which you would think is such a brutal word, you know, it's brutal (laughs) and beautiful, because when we're desperate, we're raw, which in my world means ready, able and willing. Mm -hmm. It's like, just Mm -hmm. friggin show me, you know, just Mm -hmm. is there anybody out there, right? But it's also more like, is there anybody in there? Yeah, because I think it's really stimulates our creativity too. Yes. And I think part of the trap of patriarchal, this patriarchal sense of security is that it stifles our creativity. 
And I love being desperate because then I have to think outside the box. I have to face my fears, whatever those are. And those are usually fears that are damp, putting a damper on my creativity. Mm -hmm. And then I can get out and get out of that. You know, it's uncomfortable, of course, but at the end, in the end, it's like, well, if I weren't desperate, I never would have gone on this journey. And I know that my, one of my gifts to the world is my sort of inherent theological creativity. And that's a gift to me and it's a gift to others. And I wouldn't have been able to even offer that if I hadn't been desperate for it for myself. I love that theological creativity. I'm making a note right there. <laughs> and yes, because, you know, I've started to also really recognize again that it's almost like when you start to think about the patriarchal programming as this, you see like the the diabolical brilliance, I'll say. And and I don't mean I even hesitate to use the word brilliance with it because diabolical is sufficient. Mm-hmm. But there's when you recognize that even in our school systems, we take kids away from their imagination as soon as possible. And you said in some of your opening sentences, you started realizing how important imagination is. Mm-hmm. And when we've lost our imagination and our capacity to imagine, then we don't question anymore. And when we don't question, we don't get curious. And when we don't get curious, we just are now like in complacency. Mm-hmm. And the world becomes a very black and white place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll just use yes. that purposely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That certainly was my experience. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I also, you know, really was resonating so much with what you were saying about just kind of like the loneliness, but that it's the loneliness that creates that befriending. Yeah. Of yourself and that begins to invite you into that unknown and all of these what we would call feminine places that we had been taught not to go mm-hmm. or that have been avoided through our patriarchal upbringing. And so starting to allow the mess, starting to be with the unknown in these liminal spaces, it's like then you start really understanding more deeply, more essentially, those that creative gift, and also how if we cannot imagine something different, and this goes back to your journey of wanting to see and be in the presence of the Black Madonna, is like if we cannot touch it, if we cannot imagine it, if we cannot see it, there's a relationship there to our own feeling seen, our own feeling real. What if you could shave 15 to 20 hours off of your work week with proven copy templates and use relational marketing psychology to drastically increase your impact and your sales results? Sage has tested these methods for selling online for over 10 years and over 400 copywriting projects. They work for anyone with a business idea, including e-commerce folks, course creators, copywriters, coaches, designers, 
social media ad managers, and digital service providers. These techniques work. Even if you want to get started in online business, even if technology makes you want to cry in a corner, and even if you only have 30 minutes a day to implement, the strategies she shares will help you live your life outside of screen time, even if you don't have a big marketing budget. I love it, and I think you'll love it too. You can apply for your two-week trial by going to www.sagepolaris.com slash Monica using code REVELATION to get started for just $7 with Sage Polaris's copy template membership. That's www.sagepolaris.com slash Monica. Then use code REVELATION to get started for just $7 with Sage Polaris's copy template membership. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, I think the the work that you've done around transive unworthiness, like I, I would, I didn't even know I felt unworthy. I didn't even know I was in that trance until I had, until I was, until I was in the loneliness, right? It's like, cause I was spending so much of my time trying to be there for other people, trying to make sacrifices and all of, all that was doing was hiding the deeper issue, which was shame. And so when I was able to release some of those relationships, or at least that some of the felt closeness of those relationships, all I was left with was lots and lots and lots of shame. (laughs) And then it's like, oh, this is what's been beneath the surface this whole time, motivating pretty much everything I do. Everything. And it was, it's, I think it was amazing to then be able to bring that shame. Cause again, it was, it, it was overwhelming. It was debilitating to, to kind of, it's almost like in like, you know, at every point in a romantic comedy, there's some sort of mix up or miss signals. And then they're like, everything I thought was true about this relationship is a lie, you know? And then of course they find their way back to each other, but that sort of shift. And that, that's how I felt is that everything I thought was true about who I am, who God is, what the world is, it's all kind of crumbling. Mm -hmm. And it's too much for me to bear on my own. And so in that sense, it was wonderful to then be able to take that to the Black Madonna in person. Yes. And say, this is what is happening. (laughs) And allow, you know, it's interesting, like, I'm not sure how I would describe my interactions with these Black Madonnas, but I would say imagination was a big part of it. Using the art of who they are in terms of their physical features, and all of them are so different. And what I've since learned that the French Madonnas are a little bit different than some of the other Madonnas, Madonnas like, say, a lot of the Italian Madonnas, who I've also gone to vi- go visit a, f- a number of them. But a lot of those were um, created around the same time by artists who were in the same school of thought and art. And so they look really similar. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, one of the, one of the gifts about the ones that I went to go see is they, they all like, even one just down the street from the other looks vastly different in terms of when they were created or appeared centuries apart. And so you're allowing the art to infuse your imagination. And of course, the stories of the people who've loved them to infuse your imagination. And then also at the same time, bringing this big shame or this big crumbling something just really magical that happens in that mix of desperation art right right where where it just suddenly starts to have 
it has its way with you in a whole different way. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, and I love too, like what's coming up for me in this moment is I'll never forget because it actually, like this whole unraveling for me around like my patriarchal upbringing in a Catholic home and just the different stages of questioning and the different stages. Because for a long time, I thought, well, maybe it's just the Catholic church. I kept thinking like, mm. you know, like I need a community, like it's the wrong religion, right? Like, or something, right? But, and I had already experienced like this descent, this dark night of the soul, but it was so interesting how suddenly like along the path, I'd be getting these other archetypes or symbols that would come into my consciousness or my awareness. So you're going to art, like I immediately kind of think of, you know, some of the things that came to me on my way, like the myth of Inanna, and then suddenly being like, oh my gosh, like that happened to me, you know, and like, how do I not know about this myth? And then also like being on the internet one day and social media and coming across girl god books and i was like oh, what like girl god you know like and just even the language right and like you you just start like the unraveling but what i'm really really sensitive to in your book is this search for the divine in your own image, an image being a word from imagination, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and just being like, dunk, you know, like, mm-hmm. yes, like we're all searching for the divine in our own image, you know, and that is this journey of like getting it that it's the both and the human and the divine, you know, and it's, oh. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just really understanding, even if it's just for a glimpse, just a revelation, you know, a momentary revelation that just kind of like helps you remember for a moment, you know, before you kind of go back to life, you know, as normal. It's like longer and longer periods of time that I found at least where I could just stay embodied, where more and more the world around me became more vibrant, more magical, more. And I just really was reading your work through that same kind of awe of witnessing another woman's journey in a way that really modeled you continually giving yourself approval and permission to have it look however it needed to look for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought since then, I wish that I wish that for everyone, you know, I wish I want everyone to find themselves in the divine, Mm -hmm. including white men. I mean, imagine how the world would be like if white men actually knew they were sacred. I know like that would change everything, right? White, white male God doesn't even affirm their sacredness. No, it does not. (laughs) Just this trap to keep everyone on this maniacal hamster wheel to try to win approval from this God who's never going to give approval. (laughs) Yeah, I would love for you to go deeper there. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I just, I kind of talk about it a little bit in the book, but you're right. Like there's, there's so much more to explore. I kind of talk about how white male God has this tiny, terrifying circle of acceptability (laughs) that feels kind of like a pinpoint, but he's kind of tricked us all into thinking that we could possibly be included in that if we just contort ourselves enough. And so if, you know, he has all these rules, but the rules are blurry. 
and they often change. And so it's like you're constantly trying to learn the rules of how do I stay holy? How do I stay good enough? But then there's also this impossible standard of perfection. And there's this impossible standard of needlessness. And that's what it means to be a made in white male God's image, to have power over, to be perfect, to be needless, and uh, to perfectly conform to these rules of tradition and consensus and all these things that, again, the rules constantly change. And I kind of talk about that with my own experience in the evangelical church with purity, purity culture, where it was like, it was never really clear what was okay and what wasn't okay sexually, but there was this a lot of shame around it. And it's just that nobody wins. And there's, I think there's a story I tell in the book where one of my colleagues at Duke, who's like, I mean, some in Duke Divinity School is pretty, it was an interesting place to be faculty because the vast majority of my colleagues were like world renowned scholars. And so lots and lots and lots of people who from the outside, it looks like they're just winning at life. They're getting all the big grants. They have tenure. They have the, the family situation that looks that, you know, that's, that's valued in our society. They have the esteem. They have the wealth. And to one, you know, late one evening, just catch one of my most esteemed colleagues and him saying, like, I'm still here at one o'clock in the morning because I'm afraid that I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just like, if you're not good enough, no one is, you know, like literally nobody can win at this game. Nobody. And so white male God just wants us to stay on that hamster wheel, just trying to be good enough. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, so much of patriarchy would just crumble if men, if white men, if white people knew they were good enough. Right. It <laughs> didn't have to keep proving it and proving it by having power over other people. <laughs> That's right. Proving it over exactly through power. Mm-hmm. So yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's just like fascinating. And also the fear, right? I mean, like so much of white male gods liturgy is fear. And so it's like, I want to make sure that I'm safe. I want, to, then that means holding on to my money. Even if I know someone down the street really needs it, I need to make sure I have more money in my bank account because I'm afraid, or I can't actually advocate for this person who experiences oppression in a way that I don't to get the job mm-hmm. in like an affirmative action situation. Because what about me? I'm afraid right. for right. me. Right. And so that constant fear and that disconnect from abundance. That's it's right. For scarcity, all scarcity right? based. And so I have to, I have to hold on to what I think I've earned for myself. I have to disconnect from the needs of others. I have to engage in this power over because that's the only way to survive. Yeah, I have to be better than them, or else because I've seen what happens to people who are on the bottom. They become enslaved. They become colonized. We have evidence of what nobody, that's why nobody wants to be a black trans woman in this, in this world, in this like patriarchal world, because we see how black trans women are treated. And there's this desire to keep rising to the top, whatever, never getting there. And that's why like, you know, I was on that, I was on that hamster wheel for years and years and years. My parents, they're, you know, bless them. They didn't teach us that the world is a plantation and that the goal is to get off the plantation. They taught us the world's a plantation. And the best thing for you to do is to become the most powerful Negro on the plantation. Right. Play the game and win. Play the game really well. 
and and went and perfectly yeah. <laughs> and needlessly. I was sent to Phillips Exeter Academy. I went to Dartmouth. I did all the things. You know, I became a big, big, big speaker in the Christian world. I was in all the boardrooms. I was invited to all the conferences. And one of the things I eventually had to come to terms with was I can contort myself. I mean, I don't think it's possible to be more like a white man and still be a black woman than I was. (laughs) (laughs) If you look at my resume, if you look at the places where I was speaking, if you look at the people who had on my speed dial Mm -hmm. in that world, I did everything you could. And yet that wasn't enough. And so the truth is, it'll never be enough. No, it'll never be enough. And all that did was almost kill me. Literally. Right. You can never get enough of the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Ah. And so then to open to the sacred black feminine and to realize, oh, I'm sacred too. My wellness is of the utmost importance. And if the God is a black woman, then I don't have to participate in resource scarcity because there's no way that a God who understands my experience is going to let me starve. There's no way that a God who understands my experience wants me to stay on this hamster wheel, stay in these jobs that are sucking the life out of me. If God's a black woman, then I don't have to be God anymore. I don't have to play God. I can actually just be a human. And so it just, it was just a game changer. And I think it can be for everyone potentially. And I talk in the book about how because I had been socialized to be patriarchal, (laughs) as soon as I jumped on my liberation journey, I wanted to turn around and whip everybody else into joining that journey, you know? No, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. (laughs) You know, in the sense of like, you're wrong, and you just don't see it, and you're oppressive, and you're problematic. And, you know, a lot of that was really reactive. A lot of that was coming out of my trauma. And a lot of it was just really human. I had literally been formed in that way. That's what that's what spiritual leadership meant to me. Mm -hmm. Spiritual leadership meant whipping other people into shape, just like I, I was whipping myself into shape. And It was really powerful for me to realize, okay, but if God's a Black woman, it's handled. I actually don't need to turn around and convince everybody else in my family and in my world that this is the journey that they need to be on. Right. Like you don't need to do their revelation project for them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I finally had an image of the divine that I could trust. Yes. Oh, that's right. You have their best interest, best interest in, at heart too. You're not scary. You're not cruel. You don't require perfection. And you're going to, you, you have your own pathways to connect with them. Yeah. And I think because I had found this like very unique pathway to the divine, I could trust she might show up in their lives in a completely different way. And who am I to question that? Yeah, I loved that part in the book, too, where you were, I think, with a colleague in the hall, and you were dealing with all of the seminary men. Mm -hmm. And you were like, I'm not gonna be able to keep my mouth shut. And she was like, then don't basically, you know, like, I'll help you clean up any messes you make. But you know, it was like, again, like one of those, like you were already kind of giving yourself permission for the mess, but only in certain places and only with certain conversations. Right. 
And that's that kind of like that gradual unbecoming that just kind of it's like, oh, right. Because that's the other thing that you start recognizing as you come more and more out of this patriarchal trance is this is this like how compartmentalized literally everything has become everything in my life yeah mm-hmm. it's just astounding it's astounding and yes for my listeners there's just like there's god of the gag reflex in her book there's <laughs> there's our lady of the sick and the one that cherishes the hot mat it's just like it was so good because there was just a way that you wrote about each of the Black Madonnas and your own experience of unbecoming that just was such a a sacred rebellion, mm. you know? Yeah. And I love, you know, I think it was exciting for me to connect with an image of the divine that I felt comfortable to name in these unique ways, you know, like she whose thick thighs save lives and Our Lady of the Side Eye. And and it's interesting because after that pilgrimage, when I was doing a lot of the work that went into writing the book, one of the things I learned about the Black Madonna is that, you know, there are like 72,000 known names of her. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And there's like way more that we don't know. It's just, it's amazing how she seems, she's so different than white male God who kind of shows up and is like, I am who I am. I am, you know, like (laughs) all the double entendres and the like, right? Like you're just like, what? That didn't even fucking make sense. Exactly. Right. It's just, and and he kind of just shows up and like pronounces himself, you know? Yeah. I feel like her, that she's really different in that every community has named her differently based on how they relate to her. And so it's like this mutual naming. And that's what I felt invited into as I was meeting these Black Madonnas to be like, oh yeah, her official name is Our Lady of the Sick, but I'm going to call her, she, you know, she cherishes our hot mess. And I just felt like, I felt permission to do that. And then to To realize- To co-create. To co-create, because that's what she's all about, right? That mutuality. And I love that Afterwards, I realized, oh my gosh, this is actually one of the significant aspects of the spirituality around the Black Madonna for years and years and years. Like for centuries, people have been doing this and each Black Madonna will have like an official name and then there'll be like five or six unofficial names too. And in in a town of 300 people, you know, because she did this one miracle. So now we call her the, 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 of the miracle. And then when she did this one other miracle, and then we call, you know, and it's like. <laughs> well, and what that speaks to me of is of endearment. Endearment, co-creation, imagination, allowing really that affirmation of our own divinity. Yeah. Right? Like I can participate in the naming of God. And the familiar, because there's this way Right. The intimacy. It's just like. She is not an off-planet God. No, no. it's like she's mine. She's mine. Mm -hmm. And then I think the more that I feel that about her, this real sense of communion, almost like what you hear in Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. It's not possessive. Right. And so it's, it's real intimacy. It's real union. And then the more I connect with that aspect, the more free I am to release her mm. and not feel like I need to have the last word on her or not feel like she's mine and you can't touch her or you can't have your own experience with her. There's just less of that patriarchal urge to control. 
Right, right. To control even how other people relate to her. It's like, okay, if she's truly mine, she's truly everyone's. Yeah, yes. Which is just that says it's a non, it's a very like, just growing up in such a heteronormative society where partnership is seen in this like really codependent, clingy, possessive way. Like it's just it, that it breaks down even that. Oh, yeah. And and I would go back to that, too. And really mine. She's really everyone's like, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Which is the opposite of what I've been taught about intimacy. Yeah, say more. Well, it just seems like if you're in an intimate relationship, there has to be some sort of exclusivity mm-hmm. that's a part of that intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of my friends who are doing amazing work at that intersection of like heteronormativity and partner culture and all the marriage culture, all that kind of stuff. It, you know, it really, it really relates to this, but like, it's just interesting how much our society is set up so that if you want to have a person, it has to be this sort of heterosexual partner. And otherwise, I mean, we don't really build communities like many of the communities that have surrounded the Black Madonna for centuries, where it's really, it's multifamily and multi-generational, and it's a mix of romantic and platonic, but the, the commitment is always there, that the intimacy is there. We don't value friendships very much in our society. We don't protect friendship in our society. And the only thing that's sort of elevated, sort of, is marriage, heterosexual marriage, but even that isn't really elevated because it's seen as this possessive gross. Well, yeah. And I go back to what we were kind of talking about with all of these compartments. And so you were you were just saying like your friends are doing all this great work again at these intersectional places that are really transcending these compartments or boundaries. And so it's true, you know, when you think about all the compartments, there's a lot of decompartmentalizing to be going on. Yeah. And so it, you know, I think like this is where finding new language right? This is where activating and and this is what gives me great hope about actually these times, because without an imagination, you can't like you we are seeing even though it's messy as hell. We're seeing there a whole lot of permission and people who are stepping into their own sovereignty and doing it maybe, but in a different way and in a different compartment. And I love what you said about the Black Madonna because it's it's not my compartment, not my revelation project, but I honor it. Mm-hmm. I just think that there's a lot of breaking down patriarchy happening. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. And to realize how much of it's ingrained in me, you know, and that the judgments of like what's happening in that spiritual community, that can't be real liberation work, you know, or whereas I think the more I'm invited into the sacred black feminine, the more I can recognize and affirm that beauty is happening even in spaces that I don't want to be in anymore or and also that everyone's journey doesn't have to look like mine, doesn't have to be on the pace that mine is. You know, I remember when my book first came out in February, I was pretty disappointed in, I was disappointed because we had worked so hard on the publicity side and just so much of our hopes and dreams did not come through, <laughs> even though we had been working for months and months, and months. And um, so, you know, I think I felt deflated because of that. And I felt deflated that it didn't make a big a splash that I was expecting in my head. And I remember talking to one of my friends who's a mystic. She's Sufi. 
a Sufi mystic. And she just said, Christina, you have to give it time. How much time did it take for you to go on this journey? Yeah. Like people need time. And that was so, it was so interesting how I, how helpful that was. Cause I had forgotten, like I was on a years long journey. And if God as a black woman had come out in 2010, there's no way in the world I would have picked that book up at Barnes and Noble. <laughs> you know? Right. It would have been like forbidden. Threatening. Oh, threatening. threatening. Yeah. I'm thinking more of like growing up, like that would have been just, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Certainly, yeah. As a kid, for sure, for sure, yeah. Radical. As an adult, it would have been threatening, and I and, and my friend's invitation to apply a longer lens to the journey was really helpful because now you know I get actually quite a bit that I the number one bit of hate mail I get is from like white men, of course, um, but the number two is actually black women, and one of the things I've noticed is that. It comes from Black women who have been churched in really conservative church settings and do not have permission to be spiritually imaginative. Mm -hmm. That has not been affirmed and fostered in them. And so I can actually look at that group with compassion and say, I can actually, I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that permission either. And it took me a really long time to realize that I could give myself that permission. That was a long and messy journey. And everyone's on their own journey. And that's okay. That's okay. Because God's a Black woman and she's got this. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Know? Well, and it's what I love about what you're pointing to are all of the ways that we can get pulled into the battle that's not our battle. Totally. Mm-hmm. And also... You know, kind of like just coming back, like I always talk about, like, let me straighten my crown and move on, right? Like, it's just that permission to kind of like, I'm not going over there. That's not, you know, where I'm going to put my time and my energy. And yes, like you said, it's like, it's, I trust that they have their own time and their own process. But I also really see how, you know, this is also some of the breaking down that's happening. It's like in the death throes of what is happening, there is such a power grab and a control grab happening. And I mean, I've always seen that phenomenon since I've kind of seen it. You can't unsee it when you start seeing women police other women. It's fascinating because it's like, it actually feels like it feels so tragic, you know, to me at, at so many levels. But it's also just that faith again that you know I I trust people's timing. It is not my project; it is theirs. This is their life, and I am living mine. Totally. And because my, you know, so much of my career has been around justice and speaking truth to power. I realized when I finally encountered the sacred black feminine that when I was attached to white male God, I was essentially living life and my whole justice vocation was out of a really agnostic place, which I actually, you know, no, no disrespect to agnostics, but I was calling myself a believer. So it's a little weird that I was living out of this agnosticism, which was like, if I don't go to this event and speak the truth, no one will. Mm. If I don't put a stop to this injustice, 
Who's going to? Then people will be harmed. Exactly. And so a lot of my work and a lot of my speaking out, speaking out the truth came from this sense of fear and agnosticism because I couldn't trust white male guy. Right. I couldn't trust that he had it handled or that he was using other channels or that he had his own divine timing, (laughs) you know, that wasn't violent. (laughs) And so, but now I'm, so I just realized, gosh, I was essentially an agnostic, even though I was proclaiming that I was a believer. And now I can say, oh, you know what? I don't feel like I have to say anything to that group because I know that she's got it handled. And so then the question can just be, is she inviting me in to say something this to group? Because then that comes from a different place. Yeah. Not, it comes from love rather than fear. And I'm not attached to the outcome. Right. So I can go participate in whatever's happening, say my piece, say it in a much less judgmental and problematic way, and then walk away saying, I did my work. And now what they do with that is their work, as opposed to needing to control the outcome. And if they don't vote this way, then my work didn't matter. Or if they don't change this structure, then my work didn't matter. <laughs> you know? Right. Like that's where that kind of inner discernment becomes really, really important and very, you know, that question of like, what is mine to do? And this is where, again, kind of coming back to the body, because I, I truly believe like we can be up here in our heads about it. Right. And that is just always back in the trap, back in the trance. But it's actually the body that resonates usually with where am I to go? What am I to do? Totally. And how do I feel when I'm in this place? Really, how do I feel when I just think about being in this place? Right. If I feel like I'm about to puke just at the thought of being in this conference, probably a no. Yeah. Let's, let's be with that. Right. Let's, let's, let's be curious about that because. Maybe it's a no for sure. I mean, that's just, that's a le- completely legitimate possibility. And maybe it's a, I need to let go of some things. Yes. Or maybe it's a, I'm terrified and yes, right? I'm but- terrified or I, I have a lot of judgment for that group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or... Usually it's one of those two reasons for me. (laughs) I I don't know if you know the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram one. So, you know, it's all about judging myself first, but then everybody else, you know. And so, it, you know, but it's like, you know, maybe the answer is I just don't need to be there. Or uh, sometimes I I go through this discernment process and I'm like, yeah, I do have a lot of judgment towards that group. And that's not going away this week. So let's just say no, because I'm a human and I get to be on a journey too. And my have a deadline and I'm working with it, but I don't see it dissipating. Right. And so uh, let's just be honest and be like, mm, I don't like them. So I'm not going to go. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's That's that okay. too. I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to tweet that or anything, but I can be honest. Right. And just say like, yeah. nah, I don't, I don't like them and I don't want to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's okay. And maybe next year I'll feel differently. Yeah. It's just, again, it's like, I no longer have to evangelize. I no longer have to save. I no longer have to do any of that stuff. Be perfect. Yeah. Pretend like I have it all together. Or be a yeah. martyr. Be a martyr. Totally. Mm-hmm. And I was really tired. Ta- in the book, you know, I talk about the strong, the book I read about being a strong black woman, which is like, you know, just like martyrdom from this sociological perspective where it's like, I have to be there for everyone else. I can't have any needs. I can't show any emotion and how much I was socialized into that as a black woman and just being able to say, 
oh, wow, like I don't have to be the strong black woman. Oh, my God. I can be the best black woman. I actually joined this group of, of women that's called Black Girl Mediocre. Mm. Because black yes. girl magic, <laughs> yes. black girl magic, you know, has its. It, there's a beautiful aspect to that, but it can also be a more pressure yeah. to show up perfectly and strong and magical all the time and excellent all the time. Like that hashtag black excellence all Impeccable. the time. Yeah, exactly. And that's a that's also the white patriarchy because we're trying to contort ourselves into something that will be acceptable to this society rather than showing up in all our messy glory, which, you know, frankly could get you killed depending on the situation. Right. But also just how can we find spaces in our lives when safe spaces where we can just show up and be human, just show up and be human. So it's just like, yeah, black girl. And every day on a Slack channel, we have to like share something we did that day was that was intentionally mediocre. (laughs) I love that. And celebrate it, right? It's just like celebrate it. And celebrate it. Like I'm connecting with my humanity. Like I'm not at work and nobody's judging me. So why am I in my house feeling like I have to be perfect? Yes. And, you know, and that is just that beautiful place where I always say like, I can breathe there. I can breathe there. Breathe there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love uh, Reverend Zenju Earthland Manuel, who's Mm -hmm. like probably my favorite Black Buddhist teacher. Yeah. Um, And she talks a lot about how home is the place where you just get to be a person. Yeah. I just get to be, you know, I get to just be a person. Yeah. It is. It's so powerful. And I mean, I know we're kind of coming up on time. I feel like we're just getting warmed up. It always happens this way. But I just, I would love to, I mean, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. It's just been like so amazing. And for my listeners, like there's just, I am such a huge fan of storytelling and also like fierce truth and rigor and discernment and the grits and there was all of that and so much brilliant storytelling in your book like I was just really relating as you were talking about the needs and not allowing not allowed to have them and about the broken ankle which you readers will have to pick up the book if you want to know more about the broken ankle but it's like I feel like every woman has a story like the broken ankle I really do it's like we are not allowed to need Mm-hmm. In patriarchal society, we're not allowed to have needs. And so you end up having all of this isolation and all of these lone wolves out there who are like walking around on the broken ankles, you know? And the, the broken ankle is such a metaphor mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you think about the fact that we are holding it all together on a broken ankle and what we're actually holding together is patriarchy. Mm hmm. Yeah. Hell, mm-hmm. let that go, right? Like, just say yes to the mess. Just let it go. Yeah. And let it fall apart because it is undermining every new creation that all the imagination. It's just, it becomes like just this really powerful metaphor for me when I think about it in terms of what we're unconsciously doing. Yeah. And to go into like, to use metaphors that are really common in the probably the probably more white divine feminine world is like, you know, we, we stay trapped in maidenhood if we can't learn to fall apart because that's what helps us become mothers. And like, you're right. We can't create, like we can put, we can be out there doing things. We can be out there having kids. We can be out there 
doing things in terms of writing books or whatever, but in terms, but connecting with our true creativity doesn't happen unless. And so what you have is like, I mean, like the whole like plastic surgery and looking young world is such a good metaphor for that because what you have is all these women who should be coming, who should be mothers and crones who are trapped in maidenhood. That's right. cracking on the inside, even if on the outside, it doesn't look like they're cracking. Yeah. And it's just, it's a tragedy, you know, it's really a tragedy. And I'm 42 now and I'm like, okay, I have to, I have to move into motherhood. Right. And that's that mature feminine. Mm -hmm. And so I probably didn't share with you, but I am a rites of passage practitioner for, you know, like made into mother work. And so yes to that. And my listeners have heard me talk about it over and over again. But you know, that rite of passage from what we'll call wounded maiden, actually, right, is like, is is, what most people are most people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had a kind of a revelation the other day, you know, where I was like walking out of a room and I was like, no, those weren't, you know, like wise women, those were wounded maidens, you know, exactly. yeah, everywhere, everywhere. And, and it's, you know, this isn't about the shame. It's about really breaking through the the trance and really just an uh, invitation to get curious about where we are seeking outside of ourselves for validation and approval because that I feel like that's all over everything. Well, it's a prison. Yeah, it's not about shame. It's just it's a prison. And yeah, it's like it's a plantation, you know, like it's Yeah, it's like the plantation. Yeah. There's more to life than this. But that, but we've been taught that this is life, and to make the most of it. That's right, make, and to win at it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We don't even have. I mean, I, I've thought so much while I was writing this book, and then going through the process that accompanied this book about Harriet Tubman, mm-hmm. who was born on a plantation, socialized to believe that this was all that the best thing she could do was try to survive this. That's all that was available to her as a little black girl, as a young black woman, had no knowledge of life off the plantation, had no idea what the language was, what the trans- what her transferable skills would be, what the terrain was, who was trustworthy and who wasn't, and yet still somehow was willing to step into that unknown. And I really am so curious about that spiritual process for her. How did she get to that point where she was just like, I'm just too sacred for this. I don't know what's out there, but it's, it's got to be better than what's here. Yes. And I feel like that's what I had to come to as that wounded maiden. Like, I don't know what's out there, but somehow I'm too sacred for this. (laughs) And I don't know how I'm going to make a living once I start speaking out on some of these issues. I don't know how I'm going to have a family. I don't know where I'm going to worship. I don't know who my people are going to be, <laughs> but somehow it has to be, you know, and getting to that. And again, it's going back to that desperation, that like kind of going full circle of I in it then in being able to move into that liminal space. Cause there's no way that Harriet Tubman could have been prepared to leave the plantation. The whole system was designed so that she wasn't prepared. So she wasn't empowered. So she didn't have the connections, right? Right. And so the Underground Railroad was something she had to create. <laughs> it didn't already exist, you know? <laughs> like, and so that's what white patriarchy does. It wants to keep us in this, in this prison. 
And so, yeah, it's absolutely not about shame, but it's also just, I'm too sacred for this. I'm too sacred for this. I love that, Christina. I love that. And also, you know, just really resonating with this desperation, you know, as an ally, intolerance as an ally, you know, it's like, that's when it actually becomes this disguised gift, mm-hmm. you know, where you kind of set off and you can feel desperate and that that gets to belong here. There are certain moments where desperation is actually the path. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, well, this has, you know, just been such a rich, rich conversation. And I, the last thing I just want to end with is just like, you know, I think about God, right? And I think about, you know, all of the ways I've had to unravel and, and you know, just find the God of my own, the God of my own. And so I guess my question is like, what would you say to our listeners about finding their own God without the ingrained baggage of white male God or like the need for it to look a certain way? Well, I think one thing that was re- that has been really helpful for me is reading spiritualities from the margins. Ooh, okay. So I know while I was on my journey, I was reading a lot of Palestinian liberation theology. I'd actually read like an hour every night before bed. It was almost like my lullaby. And to read things like when Naima Teek talks about Samson as the first suicide bomber and just really drawing this unique perspective that affirms the sacredness of even suicide bombers. That was so powerful. I was reading the Black Trans Prayer Book. So just reading a lot of spiritualities outside of my experience, and even particularly from places where I'm the privileged one, like I'm the Western American compared to Palestinians. I'm the cis Black woman compared to trans Black. And allowing their gumption to feed my own. And there were parts where I was just like, if a if this Black trans woman that I'm listening to right now, who's writing their story, can find themselves in the divine, then what's stopping me? And so that has been just really powerful. Well, there you have it then. Yes. <laughs> Get outside the margins. It's just so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you again for everything you shared today. Thank you for asking all of these gritty, tough questions. Thank you for your gumption, your audacity, your brilliance. Thank you for daring to be so shiny. And so, you know, I think too, like women just need to just so permissioned, you know, like, thank you for that. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. It's an honor to have you. And for our listeners, I will, of course, be sure to put all of Dr. Cleveland's links and suggestions in the show notes. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.